Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Dry eye is one of the most complex challenges today for practitioners and patients alike. Many patients feel frustrated by a lack of relief and their practitioners by an inability to pinpoint the precise problem and solution. Fortunately, there are eye care providers who have dedicated so much of their focus to improving our understanding and treatment of ocular surface disease. Today's guest is one of the most dedicated warriors in the battle on dry eye disease. That's right, it's Dr. Laura Perriman. In this episode, we talk about her passion project, Dry Eye Master, and how she likens treating dry eye to unraveling a ball of yarn. She also shares many invaluable tactics for effectively addressing the dry eye patient, both physically and psychologically. Here's Laura. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Laura Perriman with me today. Laura has been a friend for years, actually, since we first met in Miami at one of the ARC conferences uh, that Bill Trattler and others put on. Um, If that's not on your radar, uh, that's a great meeting, by the way. It's usually in Miami, um, usually in a a really nice venue. And uh, that's how I got to meet Laura and some other folks. And uh, since that time, Laura has been a dear friend and really a trusted resource for me whenever I get into the weeds with dry eye. And whenever I'm beyond my depth, I know that Laura will have the answer typically. And usually she has a really cool way of explaining it that sticks in my brain. And so as I was thinking about guests for uh, Off the Grid, I knew at some point I have to con Laura into coming on the program. So (laughs) with that preamble, Laura, thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening tonight to share with us what's going on in your world and especially talking to us about your new program, Dry Eye Master. Gary, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. I'm humbly delighted and thrilled. Um, and I feel the same way about you, brother. You're amazing. Well, I, 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 that's, that's yet to be, uh, yet to be validated, but thank you anyways for that. <laughs> um, so Laura, I, I, I remember the lecture that you gave at, at ARC. Um, this is like three or four years ago, I think maybe three years ago. And I was so impressed with the basic science savvy that you presented at that conference about dry eye, but you did it in such a fun way that all I remember, like a lot of Hall and Oates references and a lot of really cool uh, rock star analogies with dry eye. And so um, anyways, that's, that's maybe a, we can, we can talk about that more a little bit later, but I know that dry eye is really your passion. Um, it's a passion that we share and, and I have gone away a little bit from that in my practice, but I was very deeply involved with dry eye for a number of years. And so I, I kind of understand where you're coming from, but give us a little bit of background on why you decided to start this program, Dry Eye Master. Thank you for that. Uh, so Dry Eye Master is my nerd outlet, if you will. It's <laughs> where I'm trying to collect things that I've done over time, whether it's explaining things to patients about their cosmetics use, whether it's explaining high-level immunobiology, which I think is wicked cool, or a talk that I've done or an article I've written. I just want a place where it's all together 
and it's purely for educational purposes. I don't have any you know, financial interest in it. I just want a place where people can go and nerd out or have a little fun, or if we're lucky, both. Right. So this is essentially a place where your the resources that you have created have a place to live online. And because you're such a gracious person, it's really available for anyone to look at and, and utilize. Is that pretty fair? That's that's the goal. That's the direction. And I it's very homespun. You know, I'm just doing it myself. So uh, don't judge too harshly. It's, it's no, no, not at all. But I've I have big goals for the thing. I would love for it to have, you know, educational videos and a patient portal and maybe even a blog section. And maybe if I'm lucky, I can have guests on there like you. That well, would be cool. You know, I think that think big things come from small beginnings and it already, <laughs> the, the website looks great. So let me just give, give you a plug real quick. Dryeyemaster.com for anyone who is looking for some great resources um, on dry eye from Laura. Um, you can go there and, and check that out. Um, it's very well done. It's very nicely organized. Um, and I think we can follow you on Twitter at Dry Eye Master. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So people can tweet you questions. They can ask you stuff and you're, you're happy to respond to them. I am happy. Yes, indeed. So Laura, I want to get into the weeds a little bit on your practice because um, I want to make the most of, of this time that we have together. I know that because you have this passion and and specialize in dry eye, I'm sure you are somewhat of a magnet for the problem patients where people in your region, <laughs> uh, I don't mean that as, as a negative. It's actually a no, high it's compliment. All good. It's all good. Um, but it, when someone specializes in something like dry eye, typically uh, the other practitioners in a region, once they have uh, become frustrated with someone and, or can no longer feel like they're helping them, they all funnel to the person who's willing to be the backstop. And I imagine in in the Seattle area, uh, you are kind of that backstop. So tell us a little bit about your practice um, and how you started specializing in dry eye. Well, you know, like, like most uh, things in clinical practice, it grows somewhat organically. So I found myself fresh out of maternity leave, working part-time across the street from Microsoft. And I saw these young people with dry, and I'm thinking, well, gosh, why would that be? I'm used to seeing a postmenopausal female. And that that was my push back in the day to dig into this a little bit further. And as I dug into it and read more and started understanding more about the pathophysiology, I'm like, I get this. Because my background is in molecular biology. I did research on Enbrel at Immunex before I went through FDA trials. Really? Yeah. So I love cytokines and immunobiology and molecular biology. And I'm, I'm a dork, Gary, but <laughs> I, try, I try to like be presentable most of the time. So I really, really enjoy what's going on in a pathophysiologic basis. And I, I use that deep knowledge of 25 some years to support what I do clinically and looking at novel therapies um, and looking at ways of inspiring hope for that patient who might be at the end of their rope and has truly tried everything. So it's, it, in my mind, all that work, it, it's almost like the, this was the way it was supposed to be. And I'm just flowing with it and I'm enjoying the heck out of my practice. I love my work so much and it's incredibly satisfying to me. You know, I, I have to stop you because I, ha- I there may be a past life here that I'm not familiar with. Tell, I wanna <laughs> know more about this research you did um, on Enbrel. Was this pre, was this while you were in undergrad or was this a job after college? Is this in the midst of med school? You're spot on. So I, I, um, uh, I won a 
scholarship to study at the Primate Research Center in college. And that's when I first started learning molecular biology. And I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. I met my future husband with six weeks to go before we graduated from college. And uh, he was moving back to Seattle from Salem, Oregon. Okay. And headed to law school. So, you know, we, I finished college early and came up and got a job doing molecular biology at Immunex and worked there while he finished up law school. And then I got to go back to school. But So you had a four, like a three or four year stint doing real research in molecular biology. Yeah. Yeah. And I still use that knowledge and those tools today. This is making so much more sense to me, Laura. I was always a little bit, I always wondered why you knew so much about molecular biology and cytokines when I had long, long forgotten all that stuff. And here you are spouting it off like it's, you know, second nature to you. Okay, we can pick back up. I just needed to get into the weeds a little bit on <laughs> on this backstory because there's I don't meet too many ophthalmologists who worked for four years doing research on Enbrel. So thank you for unpacking that. So let's let's dive back yes. into um, the the patient, the average patient that you see that comes in. Uh, maybe they have tried a little bit of everything. Obviously, everyone tries tears. You know, maybe they've had plugs. Maybe they've tried restasis. Maybe they've done warm compresses. Um, the list goes on and on and on. When you see a patient and they're frustrated, they feel like they've done everything. Their ophthalmologist or optometrist is frustrated because they feel like they've done everything. How do you unpack that and get a patient on the right track? That is a fantastic question. So in my mind, my first priority to treat the disease, you have to put the mind at ease. You have to connect with that patient and instill in them a sense of trust. I've got you. You don't scare me. I'm not going to go anywhere and I'm going to keep trying until we get, get this thing addressed. Right. Their anxiety level drops t 20 decibels. <sighs> and sometimes I'll even move my chair and sit along beside them and talk to them about it. And just that, that, that connection of I'm on your team, we can do this is, is really the first thing that you need to address when you're talking about that, you know, frustrated patient who's seen multiple other doctors. So, so building, that, that building a therapeutic alliance. Yeah. Building a therapeutic alliance with a patient is step one. It sounds like. Truly. I, I, I believe that very much for that emotional connection and just putting the mind at ease to treat the disease. It's very important. Words of comfort, right? Yes. Yes. So we do that first and then I sort of unpack along the lines of the biopsychosocial model. How much of this is molecular and what can I do about that part of the story? How right. much is this impacting the entire nervous system, not only the sensation that someone's experiencing, but how the central nervous system is processing it? How is it affecting mood? How is it affecting coping mechanisms? And then finally, there's the social part, you know, productivity, uh, connection with family. I mean, some dry patients just need to close their eyes. They're not ready for bed, and they miss out on family time. They miss out on all kinds of things because of their eyes. And I'm drawn to that type of misery, I want so badly to help. Right. Is yeah. there any, are there any um, particular questions that you have developed in your repertoire that really seem to get you answers that are more pertinent? What kind of questions you typically ask right. to get to the meat of what you're trying to find? So to get to the meat of what I'm trying to find, I like to rely on uh, visuals. There's a wonderful vicious circle map in um, uh, Christophe Badouin's 2016 British Journal of Ophthalmology paper. And I saw that and it just 
I mean, my hair flew back. I was just like, whoa, this is this is what I've been trying to do all this time. And it's on one page and it's on an image. This is amazing. So I have it laminated okay. in each room. And it shows the risk factors on the outer wheel. And it could be anything from autoimmune disease to prior surgery to medications. I mean, it's this big wheel of risk factors on the outside. And all the arrows are pointing to the inside. And that's where inflammation is driving aqueous deficiency and MGD. Almost everybody's a mixed mechanism. Right. And when I show that to the patient, like we're, we're coming at this problem from one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different risk factors. And all of it's driving the stuff in the middle. That's the work I got to do. And they kind of get it. They stop being so frustrated and antagonistic and, well, that didn't work for me. And I'm like, there, there's some t connection there when they see the big picture like that. They see the battle that's being waged. They see the battle and, they, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to leave this with you. So it's, it's a wonderful way of creating that, that, that team atmosphere between you and your patient. It doesn't always work. I mean, obviously there's some patients that are harder to connect with, but that's sort of my game plan. Right. Um, I find it time efficient and pretty effective. And then we unpack other risk factors that's maybe some that has been overlooked in the past. Um, you know, for example, the cosmetic story, you saw me do that vampires on the vanity talk, yes. which is uh, just a quick distillation of uh, a really interesting body of work. I've six articles I've co-written with uh, Leslie O'Dell right. and Amy Sullivan. And we've had an amazing time just unpacking this just everyday chemical exposure aspect of dry disease. It's, it's, hugely underappreciated. So we're having a lot of fun with that. And we base it on, as much on peer-reviewed literature on PubMed as we possibly can. And it's surprising what you can find if you're able to piece the story together. And I guess at the end of the day, that's how my brain works best is I can take that white paper or molecular biology or whatever it is, and I see the clinical implications of it and I can connect the dots and connect the story that's what my brain does best. Well, and that's very unique because you have people commonly, and you know, Steve Jobs was like this. I don't know if you've listened to Walter Isaacson or read any of his stuff, but he talks about the intersection of science and humanities is really where some of the best work is done by some of the most creative geniuses of our time, like Steve Jobs, um, like, uh, for example, Benjamin Franklin. You know, when you have someone uh, who understands the human side of things and the humanities and has some, and you have someone who understands the science of it and can be that bridge. Beautiful things happen. And, um, I see that in what you do and, and it is very, very special. Well, that's so kind. Thank you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit, do you use standard questionnaires? I know the, the speed yes. questionnaire is something that um, a lot of folks uh, use and love. What, what standardized questionnaires do you like? I, I like having a standardized questionnaire because, um, and I use the speed and the OSDI. Um, the reasons why I always use them is patients need a number to track over time. Mm -hmm. You forget how miserable you used to feel. Right. And if mother nature did not put a forget pain mechanism in your brain, there's no way a woman would ever give birth to more than one child. So this <laughs> right. is like, it's a protective mechanism. Right. So you need that data to track progress over time, but I find them to be just a, a quick thumbnail sketch of the situation. They're obviously subjective and prone to environmental changes. We saw a very interesting uptick in our speed scores in our clinical data during that massive forest fire season. We had a period of forest fires out west where um, in September where the air quality was worse than Beijing. And I remember mm. flying to Millennial Eye in Nashville where I, where I got to see him. We played guitar together. You're, you have a great singing voice, by the way. Um, I'm like, yes, it's, oh um, man, I, I <laughs> no, wish I not had really. 
do. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But I was flying out to that meeting, and oh my gosh, the entire West was on fire. It was cloudy. And as soon as you crossed the river there, uh, heading to Nashville, it's like, oh, the air is clear. I mean, it was very interesting. We saw an uptick in our MMP9 testing and on our speed scores in forest fire season. That is so it's, really interesting that you could track it and it would track that closely. That that's, that really validates the the questionnaire in my mind. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting piece of the puzzle and it just helps to uh, just put things in perspective, not put blame where it's due, but just to, to, to put the normal ebbs and flows of chronic dry disease into perspective. Gotcha. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh-oh, and we yeah, we always, we always got to keep it real <laughs> on off the grid here in the last five years, let's say maybe give or take, how would you rank the, um, advancements or the innovations in dry eye? And, and I'll give you some choices. I just kind of want to get your take on, on, and, and maybe you can say different situations. Maybe these would work differently, but We'll say generally point of care testing would be one category. We'll say LipaFlow and or LipaScan. We can lump that together as, as an innovation. Obviously, we've had cyclosporin for a long time, so we can keep restasis in the mix there. Um, and then Lephitograst. How, does, how would you rank those in terms of things you've seen? Or we can also put IPL in there. I know that you do a lot of IPL. So as you're <laughs> looking at maybe the newer generation of um, diagnostics and therapeutics. Um, what are your go-to mechanisms and, and why? Wow, that's a tough question because really what I want to say is we're just getting started. Right. <laughs> I envision a day where we will have this little point of care test where you can run a complete cytokine analysis profile for each patient, maybe even some other early biomarkers looking for you know cancer proteins. I mean, the, the future is bright indeed. But there's going to be a time where we can customize our treatment for each patient. So we have the development of all these amazing tools, and we need all of them. We need the immunomodulators. We need the mechanical approach to MGD. We need the phototherapeutic approach to MGD, for, and those are uh, Lipiflow and IPL, respectively. We need all these tools, no single one of them that is going to crack the nut. And so I'm going to put them in a pot altogether rather than ranking them. And I'm not trying to hedge. I'm, I'm happy to answer the question, but I, I feel like it's not productive to say one's better than the other because we need every single one of those tools and it depends on the individual. That's, that's actually a, a fantastic answer because it really is, it almost defines um, um, dry eye disease as a, as a category um, where things are never really cut and dry. It's like you said, most patients have a, a, a multimodal mechanism. And so right. um, one thing is never, you know, at this point anyways, it's, it's typically one thing is not the magic bullet. It's usually a part of, of the situation. Correct. And at any given time in a person's disease state and recovery, I, I view this as like um, you know, unraveling a ball of yarn. You unravel some little bits and then you discover another knot. And right. that and then you address that knot at that time. And so it's just, it's a very dynamic process in my mind that there is no silver bullet. 
And it, it's a very cluster-based approach to decision-making. Sometimes a little envious of our retina colleagues, you know, see hole, fix hole. But right. that's <laughs> what we have in dry eye disease. Right. But as long as you're comfortable with multiplex analysis and thinking and decision-making, it can actually be incredibly rewarding and engaging and fun. Well, I actually found that to be true. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the see cataract, remove cataract, repeat. <laughs> Gary, you cut yourself short. You're a very creative, intelligent guy. <laughs> well, in, in terms of what I am most productive doing, it's it's kind of, you know, if you if lens, then no more <laughs> lens. Um, but regardless of that, you know, for a long time, for about three years, I worked um, in a different scenario and got to work with my dear friend, Paul Karpecki, who is a genius and, is um, a genius. and as smart as he is, he's actually nicer than he is smart. Um, I would agree with that. And he's that's a hard to even say because he's so smart, but he's so it's nice. He's as Canadian. Well. Um, but anyways, <laughs> I got, I, I was sort of forced into the situation where there were a lot of really high acuity dry eye patients coming from, you know, we were that funnel. So they were coming from all over the region mm -hmm. And, you know, it so happened that many times I was the guy to, you know, care for them. And it was interesting because prior to that, my strategy for dry eye was um, just taking out their cataract. <laughs> 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 oh, this is true confession time, actually. Um, okay, no, that's myself. not really true, but in some regards, it's a little bit true. My strategy for dry eye, though, was basically, you know, I would try some tears and I might try some warm compresses, but really it was like trying to just get them out of the clinic and minimize and downplay. And because I just didn't, I, I kind of felt intimidated by it. Um, mm -hmm. It was a frustrating thing for me um, to, to recognize that it was going to take a lot of time and handholding and thinking mm -hmm. to um, address the patient's concerns. And I just didn't feel that good at it. And I didn't feel like I had a real systematic approach to it. And it just didn't feel good to take care of dry eye patients. I just never left the encounter feeling like I had really helped them or given them mm -hmm. something that was tangible that they could, you know, I don't know, feel like they got their money's worth for seeing me. And so it was really something that I avoided um, at, at all costs. But I found myself in a situation in a clinic where that was not going to be a, an acceptable uh, answer. <laughs> and so I decided just to like, dig in and, and really mm -hmm. figure out some strategies. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of share what I did and then feel free to say, well, that was not right, or I've found that to be true, but maybe do some other things. What I found was that patients like to be put on a path and they wanted to know that there were some things to expect along the path or along the journey and that we kind of had a plan for them. Let's take, for example, a patient who has pretty clear um, uh, um, evaporative tear loss, so myeloma gland disease. And I would tell them, I would actually have had a printout that had basically three categories, mild, moderate, severe. And I said, you know, there are basically three steps we can take and we want to put you on this path and we're going to try stage one treatment. And that was pretty simple. So stage one treatment, I think, was um, putting them on a lipid-based tier, um, doing some omega-3s and doing some warm compresses. And we would Perfect. see them back in, you know, six, six weeks or so to see if there had been any improvement. And um, we, we actually sold a mask at the time, um, pretty much at cost, but Bruder, uh, no financial interest, but Bruder makes a fantastic 
um, warm compress mask that, that you can sell very easily in your clinic. But it really was something that I could hand the patient and say, this is how you do a warm compress. Please get this and put it in the microwave. And I'd walk them through that. And the handout was great because I made it, it, it went through everything. They'd come back in six to eight weeks. And then if they weren't better, um, and a lot of times they, they weren't better at that time, I would add usually doxycycline, um, and I would add some Lodamax ointment to, um, to mm-hmm. apply. And then I would say, all right, let's see you back in another six to eight weeks. And if you're not better, then we'll do, um, we didn't have uh, Lipiflow, but we did a version of uh, my bowling gland expression and heating of the glands. And what I found was, you know, the patient wasn't necessarily irate or frustrated if at six weeks they were not magically cured because I set the expectation um, pretty early on that we are going to go through different phases of treatment depending on how they responded and we're going to increase our um, level of sophistication with each step. And it seemed like, and I don't know if that was just setting the expectation or having a systematic approach, but I found that to be, it really put them at ease from the beginning and allowed us to, mm-hmm. to be very logical in the way we approached taking care of that segment of patients. Have you found something similar with maybe different segments of your, of your dry eye patients? Wow. I, well, thanks for sharing your story. And I think, I think you are in, intuitively good at this. Um, and to cut yourself a little bit of slack, you probably were in that clinic at a time before we had our advanced tools. So, you know, we only had so much for so long, and now we have a lot more tools That's to offer true. patients. That's true. I love the idea of your stepladder approach, and I love the idea of setting a safety net in mind for your patient. I think that's critical in putting the mind at ease, and that's a key part of just being a doctor. So I commend you for that. I think that's spot on, that I've got you alignment with the patient. I'm on your side. We're going to keep at this until we get somewhere. I think it's brilliant. So good job. So taking that idea of mild, moderate, severe construct that you trained with, and um, given that a lot of our tools have come online since then, the I, I've expanded that idea of so what you what you offered was thermal therapy, uh, steroidal therapy, and nutritional therapy, and then ex- and then mechanical therapy, right? Right, basically. So. There's a, an incredible paper, actually, yes, in uh, the Ocular Surface Journal, 2017, April issue. Uh, Christoph Badouin's on that group. The lead author is Gerd Gerling. Brilliant description of the six interrelated pathophysiologic mechanisms of MGD. And I read that list. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. I get it. But who's going to remember that? And so in my crazy brain, I'm like, let's reorganize this. Let's call it the BISTO. Let's call it the BISTO of MGD. And that's an acronym. And it stands for the bacterial component, the enzymatic compromise, the inflammatory component, the uh, stasis of the myobum, the altered melting temperature of the myobum, and then finally the obstruction. And so that's my current construct for my stepladder approach. And it creates a, a nice way to organize all of the wonderful tools we have, whether it's from, uh, you know, Abinova and hypochlorous acid to, you know, the omegas and the thoughtful use of those, the immunomodulators and steroids, the stasis component, the thermal component, um, and then the, finally the obstruction. So I use that to organize my approach. Um, and so and basically you're, kind of you're taking a patient, patient, sorry to interrupt, but it sounds like you're basically taking a patient 
and checking each box until you crack the the puzzle. Until I'm addressing fully addressing the Bisto. Yes. I make sure I've got something on every one of those six levels for addressing the full beast. That so it's just kind fantastic. of a fun way to organize it. Um, and I, I agree with you with that stepwise approach and, and always keep letting them know that there's other things we have. There's yeah. more, there's more. So hang so in there. Let's talk there. about, let's talk about that. The other things in the future and innovations. Um, you are a very innovative physician. What innovations are you working with or are you excited about or hopeful for in the future? Um, I am really excited about three things at the moment. I get, I get excited about a lot of things. If it has anything to do with Daryl Hall and John Oates or dry eye, I get excited. Yeah. Hall and Oates. Shout out. Dude. Oh man. Fourth row. I got, I just got my, bought my ticket yesterday. I'm so happy. Awesome. <laughs> I think it's my eighth concert, but anyway, um, back to dry my other passion. And now I've forgotten your question. No, this is what you're, happens you're in three, old age, Gary. I'm, I'm ADHD. That's okay. Things, that's okay. The three, Squirrel. you said you had three innovations that you're currently oh, yes, excited yes, about. Oh, yes, yes, really excited about. Okay, yes. So with IPL, we've been tracking our data, and we're finishing up a manuscript to submit, uh, tracking our data, um, showing this incredible, impressive reduction in MMP9 burden uh, per, with each treatment, and a significant number of patients convert to fully negative, and then what seems to be working extremely well is you use the IPL therapy for a five out of six prong approach for addressing the Bisto and then followed up with a Lipiflow. And that one, two punch is awesome. And we're finding that, uh, the omegas and the immunomodulators as baseline support helps to keep them there. Of course, home measures like the Bruder mask, all those things are helpful. seems to limit the amount of secondary medications people require or additional pharmacy which is, you know, increasing in cost all the time, higher co-payments, pharmacy deductibles, side effects, et cetera, callbacks to your clinic for prior authorizations. Oy, oy, oy. So there's lots of reasons to minimize the patient's secondary uh, medication burdens. So we're excited about that. I'm excited about a new um, canalicular plug technology that I'm involved in, in a young company. Um, just to help them develop the idea and hopefully do some clinical trials. Okay. And then uh, lastly, um, I'm really, really interested in advanced point of care testing. I would love to see a point of care test that can really help us customize a patient's treatment and to track their response to treatment in an objective way. I think that would help to remove the frustration factor for a lot of my colleagues and create more of a, a linear decision-making process for dry disease, which is, as we understand it today, is completely nonlinear. So it's, um, I think that's one of the frustrations I hear from my colleagues. They feel like it just gets in the way of other things that they love to do, such as cataract surgery. Totally get that. And I think it will help to establish that swagger that you said you wanted. Um, it's like, <laughs> oh, this is dry. I, right. I, I, I got you. I, right. I, this doesn't scare me. I understand this. So, you know, all of these things will help to, you know, make you confident and give you some swagger and That's enhance your awesome. satisfaction with treating the disease state. So those, that is fantastic. Coming on board. Well, Laura, I really appreciate your approach. Um, I appreciate your friendship and your mentorship and all you've taught me through the years of, of just meetings and conversations. Um, We'd love to continue to follow this and as innovations come along and if there are things that you find um, worthy of sharing to a wider audience, um, please let us know. We'd love to have you back. Oh, you're so kind. I, I thank you so much for all of your 
friendship as well and your support. And I just really just have incredible respect and admiration for your creativity and your innovation and your drive and, you know, your collegiality and creating a forum like this. I love your segments. Well, I listen to this pretty is much all of them. Mutual admiration <laughs> society here. So there we go. Dry eye disease can be an intimidating topic to sink one's teeth into. I think it's safe to say Laura is doing us all a service in her efforts to improve our education and management. For anyone facing challenges in their own practice regarding ocular surface disease, there are plenty of resources available, including Laura and Dry Eye Master. We owe it to our patients to do our best to glean some of her knowledge, and I thank Laura for allowing us to pick her brain. Once again, this has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. Next time, Dr. Jay Parekh fills us in on his experience as an ophthalmologist and industry member and what he's learned about the physician-industry relationship in the process. Catch you then. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.